0: And we're back on part two of our podcast of Race in America. On the previous podcast, we talked about how we got to today. And now we're going to talk about where we are today. So let's get into it. So as we mentioned in the previous podcast, as I was going to get into the Juneteenth fiasco with Donald Trump. So I want to get your input here, Alyssa. Let me first give you the background. So Donald Trump was going to hold his first campaign rally for the 2020 election, this upcoming Friday on Juneteenth. Let me just give you some history with that to begin with. Juneteenth was not the day that all slaves were freed. It was the day that the last slaves in the United States were declared free. It was when a union general, I believe, made it to Texas, which was the last state um, that had yet to be, you know, defeated in the civil war. Um, or in the, at least was in the United States at the time. He went there and he declared all the slaves there free. And so the Juneteenth, if I have that correct, Alyssa, was the last day in the United States that all slaves were at least proclaimed or declared free.
1: Yeah, um, I feel like it should be celebrated as a natu- national holiday. It should be like, you know, a second, fourth of July, because in all honesty, it does mark freedom for a ton of people in this country.
0: it at least marks freedom for like around like 12 to 15% of this country.
1: Yeah. I feel like we should have barbecues. We should have fireworks. It's just as important as the 4th of July to honestly, all of America. It's an important part. Like, you know, where would we be today if we didn't, you know, abolish slavery?
0: And so taking COVID aside, it's obviously not a good idea to hold a rally. With the coronavirus and the pandemic happening. Mm -hmm. But the idea of picking Juneteenth to hold this rally honestly doesn't seem like such a bad thing, right? Until you find out where he was going to hold it. So he was going to hold it in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So let me give you the history of civil rights and African-Americans in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And you tell me if this was a good move. This is straight from OKHistory.org. The Tulsa Race Massacre occurred in 1921 in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Due to segregation, this district consisted almost entirely of African-American homes, churches, and businesses. For years before the riots, tensions between the two races grew. A lynching a few months earlier led African-Americans to fear that one of them might be lynched by a white mob. One day, a young African-American man named Dick Rowland was accused of hurting a white woman. Ring any bells? The sheriff arrested him and took him to the courthouse. An angry white mob gathered outside. They wanted to capture him and hang him before he had the chance to have a trial. Due process right out the window. Many of them had weapons. Several African-American men heard about Rowland and, and the growing white mob. They armed themselves with guns and went to the courthouse to offer help to the sheriff and protecting Roland. In the crowd, some white men yelled at some of the black men to hand over their weapons. They refused, a fight began, and a gun went off. This was the start of the Tulsa Race Massacre. That night, there was fighting in the streets. The next morning, a large white mob gathered throughout town. At dawn... They began shooting at African-Americans. Many tried to fight, but they were simply outnumbered. Several African-Americans fled their homes, and some were even killed. White people set fires to homes, churches, and businesses. They also looted, which means stealing, from the homes and businesses before they set them on fire. Many blacks fled Tulsa during the riot. With all of their neighborhoods and homes burned to the ground, many never returned. Some chose to stay and rebuild. Left homeless, many African Americans slept in tents for a long time. As soon as they were able, they started to rebuild their homes in their community in Greenwood. It was ultimately a pogrom. I believe I'm pronouncing that correct. Ultimately a massacre um, of African Americans. Although we can only estimate... The violence resulted in the death of approximately 75 to 100 people, but possibly as many as 300 people had died. It left about 9,000 people homeless and destroyed about 40 square blocks in Tulsa. No white Tulsans were ever arrested or tried for their attack on Greenwood. To give you some further context, the area of Greenwood had been considered one of the most affluent American Excuse me, one of the most affluent African-American communities in the United States, the entire United States, for the early part of the 20th century. The massacre, which began on May 31st, 1921, and left hundreds of black residents dead and thousands of houses destroyed, often overshadows the history of the venerable black enclave itself, Greenwood District, with a population of 10,000 at the time. Had thrived as the epicenter of African American businesses and culture, particularly on bustling Greenwood Avenue, commonly known as the Black Wall Street. So this whole there's this whole idea in the Republican Party that people who are poor, primarily referencing African Americans and minorities, that they should pick themselves up by their bootstraps. We hear that all the time. They did so in this instance, in this Greenwood district of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. They had something so special that they, they beat slavery, that they had their own community, and they were the wealthiest African Americans possibly at the time in the United States. That they had created ultimately what was called the Black Wall Street. And people were so upset that blacks were being successful and that they were doing well. That they burned it to the ground. So, with that knowledge, now, Alyssa, do you think that Trump, even if it wasn't him himself, Trump's team—I mean, we're talking about the president's team, right? This should be an idea, and 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 um um idealistically, like the best coordinated team in the world, right? This is the team around the president. Do you think it was a good idea to pick June, not only Juneteenth, but Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma? as the spot for his first rally. Does this come across as a dog whistle at all to a certain community that I'm on your side and we're against the African-Americans?
1: I mean, only in the sense where he was planning on doing a moment of silence for um, the massacre. If he was going to acknowledge it and pay his respects towards it, then it would be okay, I think. But I have a feeling he wasn't going to do that. So-
0: there's an African-American, I don't know her name, female reporter for Fox News. Fox News, everybody knows, right? Republican Outlet. I think that's pretty standard. Everybody knows that. She questioned Trump in an interview why he picked that day. And if you watch the interview, he doesn't know. He doesn't know the history.
1: It could have been his team.
0: Or even if he did well, here goes to the idea. Here's what I'm trying to get at. If Trump doesn't know That's bad. That's a problem. You're the president of the United States. If you're hosting it on a a holiday, you should at least ask somebody in your team, what's the holiday? Oh, free African slaves? Oh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, history? Maybe we shouldn't do it there.
1: Or if they were going to do it, they should acknowledge it and they should, you know, make a point to like pay their respects. And if his team didn't know, that's really bad too. But it gets even worse if he did know the history
0: of what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma and why he picked Juneteenth as that day. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Why would you pick Juneteenth to kick off your... And so in the interview, it almost comes across... I mean, everybody's open to interpretation, right? When the female reporter asks him why he picked that day, he actually, believe it or not, acknowledges that he knows. He says, "I." before he she finishes her sentence, questioning him why he picked that day, he says, I know what you're going to say. To me, that signals that I know that I did a wrong that I picked the wrong day. But listen to how he explains it. He says that he was going there because his rallies are a celebration. He makes no mention of the African-American commu- uh, com- community or what happened there. He just says his rallies are a celebration. And that, I mean, anybody who go- who's seen a video of one of his rallies, I wouldn't necessarily call it a celebration, but it gets very lively, I guess, to say the least. And so he says his rallies are a celebration and he's going there just to celebrate, you know, kicking off the campaign and to be happy. But why would you cut her off and say, I know what you're going to say and then out and offer a counter like uh, it's a celebration that's so like. He knows what he's doing or if he doesn't, at the least he's trying to cover himself, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean. If, if, I mean, if he, like I said before, if he was going there, you know, and he was going to celebrate Juneteenth and he was going to um, try to respect his black supporters. That's what's crazy. Then that would be a good move, personally. But, you know, the fact that he's not even acknowledging it is really sad.
0: Unless I got it wrong, and I don't know, so I might have to correct myself in the next podcast. He didn't even say he was going there to celebrate Juneteenth. He said he was just going there because his rallies are a celebration and we just want to celebrate.
1: Yeah, I mean I I think that if he's going to do that like I said, he should acknowledge and he should pay respect because, you know, it'd be a great thing to do. To like I said, make it a national holiday. Make it like another 4th of July because that's what it is to, you know, America.
0: And so is Trump savvy enough to actually know what what the holiday meant? He might have just been saying like I know what you're gonna say, and he just cuts her off and finishes. Um, but even if he doesn't, and he wasn't even the one, maybe he wasn't even the one who planned the day, and he probably wasn't. Somebody probably came up to him and was like, "We want to pick these days, right? We have like the, a list of these days. Which one do you want to pick?" And somebody probably probably told him like on a calendar, like, "Oh, we have teeth here," and Trump was probably like, "Oh, what's Juneteenth? And they're like, "The last day that African Americans were fully free, uh, freed." You know, he 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 must have been like, oh, "I want that day." I mean, I don't know. I wasn't in the room. I'm not Trump. But
1: maybe he wasn't even aware, but I hope somebody educates him.
0: What an error on on the Trump team. How could they make this mistake, especially with the history? But it gets worse, Alyssa, because I'm just thinking about it as we're talking here. How can you do this rally on this day with this city's history when you just had a black man choked out by police? what's going on in the world today in the united states how how was nobody in the administration like listen with the history the day and what happened only a couple of weeks ago it's maybe not the best idea to hold this rally right now in this place with its history
1: and also like you know we got like a pandemic going on
0: so I don't know who's to blame, but it's definitely somebody. It's either Trump or Trump's team or somebody. But at the end of the day, it just wasn't a right move. And so what I'm trying to get at, as we, as I mentioned in the beginning, at the, towards the end of the last podcast episode, these silent dog whistles. Even if he doesn't do it on purpose, even though I would contend, and not now, that he probably does know why he's doing it. That they pick these days as Reagan did when he launched his campaign. I'm not going to get into it. He picked a city that had a history with civil rights where similar things happened. There were killings and massacres and whatnot when he launched his campaign as Reagan did. Um, But with Trump to pick this day is kind of just like, listen, all people who have my similar views, meaning like we don't necessarily like immigrants. We don't like African-Americans. Like they don't say it explicitly because you can't get away with it today. You can't say what Strom Thurmond did vote Nixon if you don't like civil rights, but they're ultimately by choosing this day, they're ultimately saying like, it's just the truth. If you're racist and you don't want African-Americans to be equal, you don't view them as equal or you're like all this with this whole, like white, um, you know, white power and whatnot, you have to, this is a dog whistle to those people. And so we're finally going to get to, now that I got over that point, the Obama administration. Because if we're going to criticize a Republican, I only found, I find it, you have to criticize a Democrat as well.
1: Yeah, nobody's perfect.
0: Nobody's perfect. I want to keep a balance. We're not even perfect. You know, we just started this podcast thing not not too long ago. And
1: obviously, disclaimer, like, you know, I know that you know not it's, we're not you know putting a bad rap on Republicans. There's obviously extremists on both sides. No, as I said, and- we're all
0: people, and I don't even necessarily subscribe. I mean, I probably lean one way, but I I want to do whatever I believe. Um, with all my literature that I've read to, read through in my education, I want to pick a president, somebody who I think will represent the majority of people and has yes. the best interests.
1: Yeah, I feel like you know it's better to you know be more independent and you know look at, look at policies. Don't just vote blindly. Um, I think that can go for any campaign, any election, but definitely, um, you know, not all, you know, Republicans are racist and not all, you know, there's there's a lot.
0: Absolutely not. But there's a 30% block that Trump owns in the Republican party that do agree with him on many of the views that we've discussed so far.
1: Yeah. But I, I do think that, um, you know, I think a majority of, you know, America, I would like to think, can all agree, regardless of political party, that, you know, racism is wrong. And that's kind of what we're getting at. Yeah.
0: I'll do one better, Alyssa. The majority of the country does not vote.
1: Yeah. <laughs> or if not
0: the majority, like 40%, but almost like basically half the country- I don't blame them. Does not vote. Because when you have two parties- and You I
1: don't, don't identify I'm with I'm not it. trying it's to difficult. get political here,
0: but when Joe Biden says in, in an interview with like his donors or on Wall Street, whatever it was, that nothing will fundamentally change, and then you have uh, on the Republican side Donald Trump holding a rally on Juneteenth in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You you're like, well, who do I pick? Because these are not both good options. Yeah, it's <laughs>
1: difficult, and that's our, our first year voting for a presidential election.
0: Yeah, so whether or not I'm going to abstain or vote for third party, I'm not sure. But yeah, li-
1: I don't know. <laughs> it's it's hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can't get into that now. But of course, I want to go after Obama because he I have some gripes with him as well. Uh, yeah, and specifically the things he has. He failed to do for the African American and minority community. So let's get into this here. Get comfortable. Yeah, yeah. So I have written here, as if it couldn't get worse. Let's do a throwback. So the 2008 2009 financial crisis everybody loves to talk about this. Um, a lot of families suffered. My father um, was laid off. He had to get another job. Everybody was touched by this to some extent. And so let's just kick it off from the top, right? So we had the financial crisis that happened. I'm not getting into why it happened the subprime mortgage crisis. That's another episode. But ultimately, the Obama administration announced that they had a massive effort to help distressed homeowners in 2009. Because the whole idea, in a nutshell, is that banks were giving out mortgages um, to individuals who really shouldn't qualify for the type of mortgage they got. They would have payments that would be way over what they can afford. Ultimately, people um, default on their mortgages. They have to walk away from the house. So banks had a lot of, they had all these assets that they couldn't get rid of because nobody could, nobody could pay the bank to, you know, live in the house with the mortgages. And there's a problem on the financial end where a lot of banks would package all these mortgages and rate them like double or triple a, whatever it is, even though they weren't really that great mortgages because of the people they were lending money to. And so you can bet, um, um, you can bet on, I'm trying to think about what I'm trying to say here. They would package these mortgages into basically things that you can bet on. And so people, a lot of people bet against the housing market and they made a lot of money because if you thought it was going to collapse, but a lot of people are like, oh yeah, these can't fail because more, you know, these, um, these credit, um, rating agencies rated all these mortgages really high, even though they were really bad. You know, somebody with basically no income who has a $400,000 bank loan is not going to pay off the bank. They don't have money for the mortgage, but you know, these Lending agencies would rate them very highly. And so there was a lot of gambling and whatnot on mortgages and whatnot. Ultimately, did not work out in the end. You um, can get in more detail with that later on. But so we have the crisis, right? And so Obama had announced this effort to help distressed homeowners in 2009. And it, and it set quite uh, high expectations. Um, shout out to those birds in the background. Um, the program... Um, which government officials said um, would keep up to 4 million borrowers out of foreclosure because we have millions of American of Americans here who just simply did not have the money. They were either laid off or they couldn't afford their mortgage to begin with to pay off um, the bank. Right. And so this whole idea was that this program would help around 4 million borrowers out of foreclosure, because if you can keep people out of foreclosure and the banks are getting paid, the idea is that the market does not collapse. Right. At least the housing market. And so, quote, it will give millions of families um, resigned to financial ruin a chance to rebuild. End of quote. Obama said at an event announcing the effort, quote, by bringing down the foreclosure rate, it will help shore up housing prices for everyone. Sounds pretty good, right? When Obama left office, however, and the Home Affordable Modification Program or HAMP, that's what it was called, um, accepted its final applications. Friday, having helped um, to, because I'm reading this from an article here, Friday or whatever whatever at the time was when Obama was leaving, having helped a fraction of the homeowners um, government officials initially expected. So he left office and he did not help nearly as many people as he had hoped to or planned to. About 1.6 million borrowers um, had seen their mortgage payments lowered through the program so far, but about a third of those people eventually fell behind on their payments anyway. So, first of all, you're only helping like around a third of the people that you planned on helping. A lot of people, like tens of millions of people needed help. It only was expected to help four to six million, right? And then it only actually helped 1.6 million. And then a third of those people fell behind on their payments anyway. And I got news for you guys we're going to get into. This is not because of a lack of funding. There's a lot of money to go around. It's just about where you want to direct those funds. Because as we know, politics are corrupt, of course. And so this led to the dispossession of at least 5.2 million U.S. homeowner families. That's it. They had to walk away from the property. Dispossession means you no longer possess the house. That's it. It's over. You had to walk away. The explosion of inequality and the largest ruination of middle-class wealth in nearly a century. And here's where the problem lies. A great deal of this middle-class wealth and working-class wealth is held particularly among African Americans and Hispanics. So, Obama failed to help the very people that you would think, in theory, African American president, he's gonna do great works for the African American community. Nope, failed. He bailed out the banks, as we know famously, instead of, so he can shore up the banks instead of bailing out homeowners. So, in essence, this is why you hear a lot of people saying, He Obama, although not directly, but to some extent directly kicked out around 5 million homeowners. Because it says here, you know, 5.2 million homeowners lost their home. He ultimately, because he didn't do enough to help them, um, even though he could have, he in a sense, in essence, kicked out. So a lot of people, a lot of people on the left and progressives are like, oh yeah, Obama destroyed it, kicked out 5 million out from their homes. And they're not wrong. It's very true. And so the thing with the African-Americans and uh, Hispanics having this um, middle class wealth, was that it built up home equity. But guess what? If you got no home, you got no equity. And so it was all evaporated after the bubble, the housing market bubble popped. And so the effects have been so severe in poor and working class neighborhoods that waves of foreclosures drove down property values even on sound, well-financed homes. So because you don't even want, because you don't help the worst of the worst, the people who most need the help, it brings down everybody else. Even though my father lost his job, he was still able, thankfully, due to unemployment because he wasn't fired. Still pay the mortgage and whatnot, but it brings down everybody's property value. I'm sure everybody who's listening right now knows that whether you're a kid or an adult, that your home value significantly dropped during the financial crisis. And so there's this whole idea that I want to get to, tying it all the way back in to when African-Americans were slaves and when they were finally freed. They had no education. They had no wealth. African-Americans, and I'm sure, because we can speak to this um, or speak about this, they are generations behind in wealth. How were they supposed to catch up?
1: Exactly. Because I, I mean, I learned about this in my ethics class. About, Shout out
0: to your ethics professor. Yeah.
1: She was awesome um, because she educated us on racism and how um, the main way that people get wealthy is from generations prior because wealth is passed down in America. I actually brought this up in my class and she was like, right on. But yeah, because um, think about it. If you were a very wealthy slave owner in the past and you had a big plantation and you got that money after your slaves were freed, you know, you have a lot of money to pass down to future generations. Meanwhile, Black people who We're freed with nothing. No education started from the absolute bottom. They have nothing. They don't have anything to pass on. So every generation has to really work to survive.
0: And so when you're finally working and you think you finally have a stable home, you're making the payments, housing mortgage, uh, housing uh, bubble pops, and you lose everything and your African-American president doesn't help you.
1: And then you have to send your children to work, maybe because let's say you have four children. So you decide that your oldest kid, who's in high school, should drop out of high school and get a job to support the family, so you don't give up your home. And that creates a cycle, a yeah, cycle of
0: poverty. And so these African American, Hispanic minorities, they had slow. They were just starting to build up this equity. They were just starting to, you know, get the home payments going, and then that's it. It's all gone. So how can we expect and so this this episode we will be getting into the cycle of poverty. How can you expect African Americans to build themselves out of that cycle of poverty? They have a house so they can pass on the generational wealth. If they don't even have the house to begin with cuz you took it away from them. Obama kicked out 5 million people. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, that's a fact. That's insane. The first, they say, the first black president did the most harm to the African-American community. He took away all their wealth, all their, you know, um, equity, I shouldn't say. Not that they have wealth, but that it was the wealth was in their homes.
1: A little bit of wealth that they may have uh, built up from nothing. It's all
0: gone. And so according to economists Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zucman, get ready for this, Alyssa. The bottom 90% of Americans saw one-third of their wealth wiped out between 2007 and 2009. So unless you're in the top 10%, that basically means, and that's a very small category, basically all Americans lost a third of their wealth. And for many people, they just lost everything, right? Once you lose the house, you have nothing. You have no assets. Yeah,
1: what do you do from there? Where do you go from there?
0: Majority Americans pretty much a lot of people are not invested in the stock market. They don't have any assets. People's primary assets, honestly, are just their car. Cause the assets is, your net worth is made up of your assets, right? All you have, most assets people have are the car and the house, right? Even though, you know, and and the idea is that, you know, the house appreciates, the car depreciates. So not many people try to own cars nowadays. They lease, but your two main assets are really the house and the car. And you got to sell the car, right? Because you got to make the mortgage payments on the house. And then you lose the house. You have nothing. You're on the street. You have nothing.
1: Yeah, and then you have to work. And where do you put your kid? Your kid goes to daycare, but you can't afford daycare.
0: And then we wonder why people are in the situations that they are.
1: Because it's hard to get out of them.
0: And so exactly. And we're going to get into that. And so here's the quote that I was trying to reference before. It's a terrible irony, said Damon Silvers, policy director and special counsel for the AFL, uh, Ivan CIO, who served as deputy chair of the Congressional Oversight Panel for TARP, quote, that this man who, oh, I'm just trying to see where the quote cut off here. Ooh, where is it? Where is it? All right, I found it. The quote is that this man who represents so much to people of color had provided over more wealth destruction of people of color than anyone in American history. How powerful of a quote is that? It's extremely powerful. Once again, just to kick out 5 million Americans and bail out the banks instead. Insane. And so this leads to the whole concept of there's no hope. When you have nothing, you have no education, you're forced to maybe go back to work, you can't finish your degree, right? Can't even finish high school, maybe you gotta work, support the family, right? There's no hope. You have no wealth. Generational wealth That you pass down through your homes, equity, gone. They were held behind because of slavery, and now the financial crisis. I mean, the financial crisis is obviously not the same thing as slavery, but in the the sense that they don't have any time, you know, all this time wasted. Excuse me, hitting the microphone there. All this time wasted. They can't, they can't build any um, equity.
1: And I think right now, during the pandemic, people losing their jobs, I think it's people are reaching a breaking point.
0: Alyssa, apparently there's 40% unemployment in this country, but the stock market's at an all-time high. So we're not going to get into this today, but the idea that the stock market is so disconnected from the American economy that it could be at record highs. Meanwhile, 40% of the country's uh, unemployed. And apparently, majority of those jobs are not slated to come back. So yeah, that means people, businesses are, are closing. people are permanently out of work. And so I've got news for you. There's a lot of speculation going around of whether or not there's going to be another mortgage or financial crisis. Probably.
1: Yeah, people are reaching their absolute breaking point. It's too much uh, in a short period of time, if you think about it.
0: And so this brings us today with all the violence that's going on, whether it's the protests or the riots. And so, as I've read numerous works, violence is the politics of last resort specifically in the of, uh, specifically in some um art of war. One only lashes out when their back is against the wall. And it's true when, when African-Americans after all we've discussed over this past episode and a half have been constantly suppressed and oppressed. They were once slaves, then the Jim Crow laws, then the civil rights, right? They finally get some boom. Then all of a sudden we're going to implement the Southern strategy to push them down further and get more Americans to look at them, you know, um, um, askew, whatever the word is, um, and just not think that, or at um, askance, whatever it is, and not view them as equal. They have nothing left to do after, how, I mean, how many African Americans have to die? And the answer is, it just took one more man, George Floyd, for people to finally get up in arms. I mean, from my parents' generation, It was Rodney King, the Rodney King riots, when the cops just beat up that African-American in Los Angeles, the huge riots. And now we're seeing it again today with the killing of George Floyd. This was, that's it. African-Americans, their backs are against the wall for so long that they feel like they have no choice but to protest and riot.
1: I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't blame them for being angry about, you know, their past because it's, it's a lot for these families to endure. And like, you know, obviously- I can't relate to any of the struggles because, you know, since we're white, um, I'm a very small percentage, black, very small, but I'm like proud of that small percentage. And I feel like, you know, I don't want to forget about it because, you know, someone along my line, I don't want to have them be forgotten, you know, because they contributed to who I am today and my ideologies and my DNA. So, I mean you know, even though I'm, obviously it's very far back, you know, it still hurts me to see all this because, you know, it's part of who I am. It's a very small part, but it's still part of who I am and who knows how different I would be if that part of me didn't exist. And I just, you know, I, I just feel like there needs to be some kind of change because, you know, it's not fair to look at these people who honestly the only difference, the color of, of your skin, which a big part of that is based on where you're from because hotter climates, um, you know, you're darker in skin tone, you know, because your skin isn't as damaged as easily in the sun. It's literally mostly a climate adaptation and through evolution. And we're looking at that as something that's different when It's such a minute difference. It's such a small difference. And it just saddens me to see um, people still being discriminated against today.
0: Well, Alyssa, it's the great irony that a lot of white Americans love to vacation in places like the Caribbean or South America, where a lot of people, because they're closer to the equator, have darker skin. And they have no problem with them, but they have a problem with African Americans that are in the United States. Because you're in our, quote-unquote, our country.
1: It's literally an evolutionary change to protect people from the sun.
0: It makes no sense. And so when African-Americans have centuries of suppression and oppression, um, all this time of tension, they feel they have no need but to lash out. And we'll be right back. And we're back. And we're finally getting to where we are today. I want to start with this. I want to get your opinion on this, Alyssa. Does it seem crazy to you that because the Civil War ended, right, 1865, our great-grandparents
1: lived for the Civil War? That's crazy.
0: Whether they were here or in another country, they were alive during the Civil War. So the notion that the idea of slavery or African-Americans as unequal is not that far away. My grandmother is still alive. I know people that are probably alive today that still have great-grandparents that are still alive.
1: Yeah, I knew my great-grandma from Sicily. She's from Sicily. Yeah. She was around during it. Oh,
0: did you know her for like a year or so?
1: I was like six when she passed away, but I have memories of visiting her and seeing her. Can you imagine that she was alive
0: either during or after, very closely after the Civil War? So when we come to this idea that Oh, that's the past. We're over it. No, 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 That's the present to any person who studies the history of the earth. I mean, they do it in like, in p- periods of time that are like hundreds of thousands or billions of years. So to think that 140 plus 20, to think that 160 years, maybe a little less, um, is enough time to get rid of the, you know, the institutionalized racism in this country. I'm, so, I'm sorry, that's just wrong.
1: I mean, she was around during a different time. It's crazy to think it's completely really it's a completely different, mostly set of people.
0: Yeah, and it goes to the idea that, you know, they were products of their time, but you know, especially in today's day and age, I you can't have these views. I mean you can, but it's just not gonna be socially acceptable to not think as African Americans as human beings and as equals. But when you get to this whole idea of the racism and how it passed on from generation to family and through families, it wasn't that long ago. So it makes total sense that there are many people Um, you know, whatever flag you like to fly, whether it's Confederate or not, um, there are a lot of people who feel a certain way and it makes sense because to some extent their great grandparents or their grandparents probably passed on those views down to them. Yeah. My grandmother was born in the 1930s. So she lived like towards like right after the great depression happened, but it was still pretty bad in the United States.
1: Yeah. I think my, um, my, my Nana and my grandma were born around then.
0: Yeah. And so just even the way I talk to her sometimes, you can just tell she's from a different time. But my grandmother, she's understanding, she knows, of course she has African-American friends, but they, they, they grew up thinking differently. And so it's just, that just goes to show how it wasn't really that long ago and how, of course these views can be passed on. And so I want to take this time now for the second half of this podcast, this episode to get into what's going on with race in the country today and not necessarily disprove, but go after a lot of talking points that are used to go against African-Americans And we just want to maybe, you know, clear up some things. There might be some confusion around. So the first thing is, is when we talk about um, African-Americans as criminals. That's a lot of people like to do. When in reality, it's quite the opposite. Especially back then when they took advantage of them. Had kids out of wedlock and whatnot, right? And so the question is, do black Americans commit more crime? This is something that comes up a lot, right? So the talking point is this. That, you know, how does 12% of the population commit 50% of the crime? That's something that comes up a lot, right? Yes? I mean, can I... Well, let let me go into this point and then you see if you have anything to add. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes, it's true that 13% of Americans are black, according to the latest estimates from the U.S. uh, Census Bureau. And yes, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, black offenders commit 52% of homicides recorded in the data between 1980 and 2008. But we can fix this. So it, it happens. But the question is why this happens. And as I want to get into, it's because America has manufactured it as such. Take it away, Alyssa.
1: Yeah, it's because the whole thing we talked about with poverty, we put them in this point of poverty. Think about it. If you, all you know is, you know, you, as a child, you were forced out of school. You weren't properly educated because you had to support your family. You grew up in a poor neighborhood because that's all your mother could afford and you're forced to see violence on the streets every day, and that's just your every day, and you know you have to do anything you can just to survive, then that's all you know. And it's kind of like we put them there. That's the reality that they know because of what we manufactured for them after slavery. We didn't give them anything, and we forced them into a life of seeing violence and needing to sometimes steal just to survive and eat. And, you know, if you think about it, if you were in that situation, you know, you might be labeled as a criminal too because that's all you know.
0: Yeah, we have to think about how we really condemned African Americans in this country to this life of poverty. Yes.
1: And one more point. Um, Saying that... You know, black people make up, you know, however percentage that you said of the crime. In my eyes, it's the equivalent of saying that, you know, maybe this is obviously not true, but maybe 50% of brunettes commit crimes. Is there really a link between, you know, obviously it's we put them there, but, you know, from a DNA standpoint— It's, there's no brain difference. It's, you know, we put people in places based on their skin color. We oppress them and, you know, we force them on the streets. But the only real difference is a slight DNA thing because of their skin color.
0: And we're going to get into this. But yeah, as you mentioned before, when all you know is violence and you need it as a way to survive you know, in whatever neighborhood you've been stuck in, then that's what you resort to. As I mentioned before, you know, violence is the politics of last resort. So if all you have in your neighborhood are gangs and they run everything, you might end up joining the gang.
1: Yeah, and it's like saying like, if let's say theoretically you took all of the blondes in America and you put them all in a state of poverty and they were, that was all they know, then maybe they would be more violent. But would you say blondes are more violent?
0: Well, we can make numerous parallels you know, yeah, to the yeah. Jews and the Holocaust and whatnot. It's just,
1: it's not, you know, a, a real difference. So it's, it's obviously wrong to put them in the place of poverty. Yeah. We all understand that it's wrong.
0: You know, the discrimination against a person based off of, you know, their ethnicity or the color of their skin and whatnot. And so we're going to get into multiple aspects of this. And so the first one is, as we mentioned with Obama before, property values and schools and how ultimately American politicians, um, instead of helping these impoverished neighborhoods, just use them as talking points. Yeah, Chicago is ridden with crime and poor housing. Well, why don't we like put some money towards it and fix it? But we're going to get into that. And so property values and schools, right? As we mentioned before, blacks are generations behind in wealth, right? So they were forced to live in these poor or low-income neighborhoods because they have no money, right? And so because they have no money, they live in a poor neighborhood. And in turn, when you live in a poor neighborhood, you have typically low taxes because you have low property value. And that in turn uh, uh, goes to bad education because aren't all public schools funded by public taxes or I should say property taxes? They are in the United States. And so you have better public schools, like we live on Long Island, right? So Manhasset is considered like, Manhasset and Roslyn are on the north shore of Long Island. They're considered like the best public schools in the entire, um, all, in all of Long Island because they're the wealthiest neighborhoods um, in the on the entire island. And their high schools have max and like everything that's insane and crazy. Whereas other neighborhoods on Long Island, if you have low property value, then that in turn goes to bad schools where they can't maybe afford to hire the best teachers or do all these extracurricular things that the rich schools are getting to do and so you in turn get a bad education and you're not really set up to go off to college or higher education or even get a job to some extent
1: yeah and obviously teachers are going to be less likely to want to take jobs that are lower paying and that's just for their own sakes so you're getting maybe not the best teachers who maybe you're getting the teachers who couldn't get hired from uh, hired in the other schools you're getting the the sp- Teachers that aren't as good, (laughs) essentially.
0: Yeah, so if you live in a poor neighborhood, right, pay low taxes, get bad education, guess what's going to happen? You're going to end up joining gangs. You're going to end up committing murder to get by. You're going to end up using and selling drugs, particularly marijuana. We're going to get into that, right? And Because you want to find any way to get out of the life and the situation that you're currently stuck in. And if the government's not willing to help you and you have no connections, as many people don't, how were you expected to pull yourself up by the bootstraps when you ain't got no boots and you ain't got no straps? Yeah, it's true. So my father, and I'm proud to say this, he gets it. He understands it because as you know, my dad, he works a Saturday program where he works with um, individuals that are typically of color um, that are from poor neighborhoods on Long Island. They come to um, his local. The, the, my father works um, part time at a community college on Long Island, right? And so on Saturdays, um, they bring in um, like 20 to 30 of like students that are really dedicated to, you know, breaking that cycle of poverty and educating themselves. And I believe it's for free. They could come and they take a whole course. And my father teaches computer science. And he has he tells me, you would think, oh, why would you want to work with people from poor neighborhoods? Are you kidding me? My father tells me that these are some of the best students he's ever worked with, because this whole notion that people that are poor want to stay poor is wrong. That is just dead wrong that they just want to take hands out. That's not it. You ask my father. He know he's on the front lines. He's teaching these kids. They are dedicated to break their families, add the cycle of poverty. He has multiple students that have been accepted to Ivy League universities, whether it's Harvard, Yale. They go on to higher education because these are high school students taking a college level course right on the weekends. This whole notion that they don't want to work for it is so dead wrong. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, and my father can speak to that. You know, these kids want to get an education. They take their time off on the weekends, you know, instead of joining a gang, they're getting themselves educated because that opportunity exists. And so we should, and to some extent, try to offer more programs to these low income neighborhoods.
1: A hundred percent. Yeah.
0: And so not only can they better themselves, they can better the families um, and ultimately build themselves out of that cycle. And so I just have written here, you know, it's the cycle of poverty, stupid.
1: Yeah. It is what it is, you know? It's not that easy to get out of this cycle. It's extremely hard.
0: And my father understands that. And I'm so happy that he, you know, he's willing to give up a Saturday to help these kids get an education. It's it's
1: a great thing because obviously, you know, he's not getting paid a ton to do it. It's more out of, Yeah, really kind of next to nothing, but. It's out of his own generosity. And so what I'm going to say next.
0: Some people might find it controversial, but just hear me out on this. I say here that I think, we, to some extent, we need to move somewhat towards a welfare state. A welfare state, not that we are a welfare state or that we should be a full welfare state, like um, certain, uh, certain uh, Nordic countries, like um, where they have like big social security nets and whatnot. Like um, I'm trying to think, for example, like Sweden, Norway, um, Denmark, the Netherlands. These are countries that even though they have high taxes and things cost a lot of money, they have high social safety nets. Meaning if you're out of a job um, that you're basically not going to be on the streets like you are in America.
1: Mm -hmm. And I hear they're really happy. there.
0: They're really happy, but yet, but people fail to understand that, you know, these are countries that have, you know, five to 10 million people and the United States has 330 and it's only growing. And ton. so what works for one country or a group of countries that don't even equate half of the United States population is obviously not going to work for the United States. So we need, we need to have a tailored tailored approach, right?
1: Oh, Of course. And yeah. so this
0: whole idea that socialism is wrong, I would ask anybody that, and not that I'm a socialist because I'm not, but I just feel like we can move in a certain direction by willing to divert some funds to help people. And we're going to get into that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, do we have private firefighters or private police do we have, no, right? Those are all public utilities that we pay tax. That's that's socialism. But because we've grown up with it, it seems so normal. You don't hire a, fire, a private firefighter to come to your house whenever you need a fire. you like
1: volunteer fire they're firefighters.
0: Volunteers, are you kidding me? And I'll do you one better. Try to take any older person who's over 65 Social Security away from them. Be like, oh, socialism is bad. All that money you've been paid into for your whole life as a social safety net, we're taking it away. We're getting rid of socialism. There would be a massive outrage in this country of older people in wheelchairs. There, there would be a huge march on Washington from older people. They would just be like, you're not taking away our social security. <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me?
1: My, my uncle is a volunteer firefighter.
0: We thank him for his service. But can you imagine trying to take away social security from older people? Guess what? That's socialism. Paying into something that you don't get to see. You might die before you even get it. It's called socialism. Yeah. Now, we're not talking about the socialism where, like, everybody lives in a commune and works their fish. We live in a society with private property. We're not China.
1: Yeah, and we should obviously still have the ability to become extremely wealthy if we want to work towards it, you know?
0: Yeah, and so what I have here is, what I mean by pushing towards a slightly more enhanced social welfare state is that it's really just about the um, where we divert funds. Because we, I don't know what the number is, but it's hundreds of billions if not close to a trillion dollars that the United States government collects income taxes. That's like the primary way, primary way they make money on taxes. Right. Um, and so the question it's not even a question, we have enough money to help people, but just not for poor people. That's it. It just is what it is. Joe Biden. He says, you know, what is that quote? He said, he said that uneducated poor people are just as good as like, or just as edu- something like just as good as white people. He made, I'm sure, do you know it, Alyssa? Oh, yeah. Do you know what the exact phrase was? No, but it was, it didn't come out right. It obviously did not come out right. Um, This whole idea that whites and the elites, the bankers, the lawyers, that because they just are that, they get to be rich, but other people don't. And so it does it's... How how Joe Biden gets a phrase like that it makes absolutely no sense to me, and so it goes to this idea that and see I'm am an international relations concentrator so I could talk about politics all day. But Joe so, Biden
1: also said that he was going to beat Joe Biden.
0: I know he's hilarious. I can't even. But not to get too far down the rabbit hole, what's happening right now? You know with so many Americans out of work. You know whether give whether or not we're giving out a second stimulus check to Americans. A lot of companies have been needed to be bailed out. Right a lot of companies. And you would think, oh, you know, just small businesses, right? They're the only ones getting the money. Definitely not any of these big corporations that are worth hundreds of billions. Definitely not Apple, definitely not Amazon that have like trillion dollar valuations. Nobody's getting those ballots, right? You know, wrong. I love this phrase. And I didn't make it up, but I heard it once someplace, and it's the best phrase ever. Alyssa, I think you can agree with me on this. We have socialism in this country. We have socialism for the rich. And capitalism for the poor right? hear me on this when a poor person or someone who's even middle class is, is if you're not a millionaire or you're not like in the one percent, basically the United States Congress your, views you as poor you're not you're not as equal to them. they're better than you, basically that's how they view it, right And so if you are like us or someone who's poor, right you get boots you get bootstraps, you get crumbs. You were supposed to, with no help, pick yourself up by the boots, pick yourself up by the straps, even though you got none, right? You got nothing. The Tulsa Massacre, as we spoke about before, they built themselves up out of poverty, from slavery. They had the Black Wall Street. They accumulated wealth for an African-American community. Not good enough. Burned it down, right? So they're supposed to work. We're supposed to work hard for it. Meanwhile, we have rich companies, Boeing, airplane industry. I don't know what the exact number is. It was like $80 billion. They get bailed out. It might have been more. It might have been a lot more money. But they get bailed out for like $80 billion. And their president slash CEO, whoever it was, gets to go off free. He, he gets let go with a package for like, like $40 million or something even higher. It just... Doesn't make sense. We choose to bail out the big companies and not help the little guy. We choose to condemn minorities and African-Americans to a life of poverty. Meanwhile, we have up to $5 trillion that is going to be used as bailout money for the richest corporations in the entire world, where many of them don't even pay American taxes.
1: And let me tell you, the only businesses that I've seen closing because of the pandemic, they haven't been chains. They haven't been big businesses. I've seen all the mom and pop shops closing and it makes me sad because, you know, in a country that's supposed to be full of opportunities, um, I constantly see like monopolies and just the whole country being taken over by big business.
0: That's the whole thing, Alyssa. We live in what is called a corporatocracy where the corporates rule everything to some extent. We're kind of like Russia. We live in an oligarchy. where all the rich corporations who, you know, bribe politicians because money is speech, right? They can pay to super PACs, to politicians, to bail them out. And it just, it, it's very disheartening. America's not on a good course and we definitely need to change.
1: Yeah, and when we went to London, I saw a lot more um, independent businesses there you probably did too, less, less chains. And it was refreshing and it actually felt more upscale because these tiny businesses were so cute. And I, I enjoyed um, spending my money there because it was like, you know, you also felt like you were contributing, you know, it didn't just feel like you were giving um, into a mindless big business corporation.
0: Alyssa, if we live in a capitalist society, the whole principle of capitalism is that if you go bankrupt, well, you know, That's tough. That's capitalism, right? You tried to start your business. Maybe you were successful. Something happened. You failed, right? You know how capitalism works? Somebody comes in and they buy it. Right? Maybe at a lower evaluation. Maybe for next to nothing. But if you failed, that's it. You get get bought out by somebody else. When airline industries go bankrupt, even though they didn't, because we bailed them out. What do you think happens to the planes? The planes don't just disappear. It's not like... When a bank goes under, that's it. The bank is gone. It just means somebody else will pick them up and they'll just give them a new name, new title, right? That happens all the time in the banking industry where uh, banking, where banks are, um, have to pay like these huge billions of dollars, billions, millions and billions of dollars in fines because they've committed all this fraud and whatnot. And they ultimately have to go out of business, but they just get picked up by another bank under a different name and they just continue their practices under a new title, and so the idea that, oh, wow, we have to bail out the uh, airline industry, otherwise they're going to go under. Okay, maybe that will open up room for somebody else to start a new airline. You know, why does it take um, the guy, Richard Bronson, whatever his name is, the third, whatever his name is, um, the guy who started Virgin Airlines. Why does it take a billionaire to start an airline? Of course, you need to have a lot of capital to start an airline, Right. But this idea, I mean, so many industries are controlled by very few corporations. The airline industry is controlled by like maybe one to two or three companies. That's it.
1: Look at the train industry. Oh a- yeah, Amtrak,
0: the Monopoly. <laughs> Who else? If we were willing to be diversified like um, and import maybe some high-speed trains or not just be um, tied to monopolies, in China, the equivalent to a going from New York to where my college is would have been a 45-minute uh, train trip. If we had high speed trains, but because it's, we don't, and we have a monopoly and Amtrak is, you know, they pay our local politicians, you know, to just only use them. Right. Even though there is definitely competition out there, it becomes multiple hours of a train trip.
1: And I heard they only get their um, funding really from, they, they upcharge all of like the big cities. So if I were to go from like NYC to your college, um, it's not supposed to be that It's not that far, but I could be paying up to maybe even more $200 for like a round trip. Like it doesn't even, it's not even worth it anymore. It's like the same price is like flying.
0: Yeah. So it just doesn't make sense why we like corporations and these monopolies rule. When in reality, if we lived in a real capitalist society and not a corporatocracy, somebody else would just come in, sweep them up and buy them. And then we would just move on with the day, right? Instead of bailing out these big companies, we should be bailing out the mom and pops and, you know, helping these, um, Impoverished communities by offering truly affordable housing, you know, offering education and whatnot. Yeah, um, it's
1: interesting how when quality we went, education. Yeah, how when we went to London, like I said, it was all like you know smaller businesses, and London is a city, but yet in New York City, isn't it all like chains and corporations, like in Manhattan? That's like, all it is. Like, do you see any real like independent shops really that aren't like carts? And, like, small, like, bagel shops. And all these mom-and-pop shops that get
0: bought out. What do you think is going to come in? 7-Elevens, Dunkin' Donuts. It's going to be all the chains. They're just going to buy up all the properties. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to buy it all up. And so we have this um, duality uh, in the American system where socialism, right, for the rich uh, and capitalism for the poor. Pick you up by the bootstraps. And this, of course, goes right back into the cycle of poverty with the war on drugs, which we're going to get into now and going after black people, um, or African-Americans and minorities. And we're going to do so right after the break. So during the break, why were you telling me about this, um, new shop that was supposed to open up?
1: Yeah, I think it's called, uh, like once bitten and it was supposed to open, um, you know, in, in little town area, um, close to me. And, um, They hadn't really started much construction. So they weren't able to open um, when the pandemic uh, struck. So unfortunately, uh, they were supposed to, like I said, they were supposed to open before, um, like, I think, I I don't know, like maybe a few months ago. So, you know, and then when the pandemic struck, they obviously didn't, they weren't built up enough to officially open because since they sell donuts, uh, I'm pretty sure that would be considered essential because it's a food item. Um, so now there's a sign outside, uh, the building where they were supposed to open and we don't know if they're still going to open because, you know, who knows if they've been able to keep up with paying rent on a building that they were unable to finish. So we don't really know what the status is on that.
0: So what is this world we live in where Boeing gets a bailout, but the donut shop, which I'm, I'm sure they're very nice people. Although I've never met them. They're just trying to build a business, make money for their family, to support their family. Boom, they don't even get a chance.
1: Yeah, who knows? I, I hope they open, but we don't really know at this
0: point. Dunkin' Donuts are probably going to move in. They'll offer you corporate donuts. They won't give you real good donuts. They'll give fresh you- Fresh
1: donuts. We want we want those fresh, those big donuts that you see on Instagram. Absolutely. Not the Dunkin' Donut ones. We want like the real mom and pop big donuts.
0: And so if we live in this duality- Socialism for the rich, capitalism for the poor. We're condemning poor people basically to a life of poverty. Because in the American system, it's basically, the whole idea of the American dream, numerous studies have proved this, is really dead. If you live, if you were born into wealth, you're going to continue it on. But people who were born poor or middle class, you typically stay in that class.
1: It's true. It's very rare to see people move in class.
0: I got news for you, Alyssa. It's a very exclusive club and we're not in it. And majority of Americans are not in it.
1: Just like the next guy. I mean, I hope I'm able to make money in my life to get out of it, but you know, it's, it's what everyone wants.
0: And so when talking about the cycle of poverty, it's important, as I mentioned before the break, that we talk about the war on drugs. Now it's going to be a little, it's going to seem like a stark shift at first, but it's not. So just hear me out on this one. And so what the war on drugs really is, is, as it was started by Nixon is once again, a dog whistle, a little more loud though, going after African-Americans and minorities for the selling of drugs. Now, there are legitimate um, things like cocaine shouldn't be like... Yeah. I mean, there are like libertarians who are just like, everything should be free and you choose what you want to put into your body, right? But the whole, war on drugs, okay, cocaine, fine, right? Makes sense.
1: Yeah, there's some things that are proven to be damaging, so... But,
0: yeah, but you know where I'm going with this. Yes. we are we're, we're, we're talking about marijuana, basically. So, African-Americans... Are 3.64 times more likely than white people to be arrested for marijuana possession, even though they do the drug at the same rate.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And this leads me to the broken prison system, right? According to the NAACP, in 2014, African-Americans constituted 2.3 million or 34% of the total 6.8 million correctional population. I mentioned before during slavery, it was like three point something. We almost have as many people, African Americans, in prison today than we had enslaved during the time of slavery. African Americans are incarcerated at more than five times the rate of whites. Twenty-five percent of world prisoners are in the U.S. We live in a puni- we have, I should say, a punitive justice system and not a rehabilitative one. Instead of willing to help African Americans and be like, listen, you shouldn't have to sell drugs to help your family out of poverty, right? We should be like, maybe have a public works program as FDR did, right? He was so popular, he had four terms. Don't get me started on FDR, I can go all day. But we should be having, in America, it's insane that we have all these African-Americans in prison when we should be offering opportunities to build themselves out of poverty that don't involve joining gangs um, to make money or selling drugs. Yeah. And so with the war on drugs, it of course, as based off the statistics, people can tell it disproportionately affects African-Americans. And that goes right into the policing system. And so, as I said, with the punitive justice system versus rehabilitative, instead of helping people, rehabilitating them, if they're a drug addict, offering them treatment, or... Uh, offering other um, proper means of, you know, either helping them get a job or whatnot. And these systems are in place, but they're obviously not well-funded or the infrastructure is not there to really truly make a change. Otherwise we wouldn't have these problems in the country that we do today. We moved to a punitive justice system where we just send you all to prison because you had a couple ounces of marijuana on you. And that's not right. But it gets worse. You ready for this one? It gets worse. 13th Amendment, right? We mentioned it before. All men are free, right? No more slaves, right? Mm-hmm. No more slaves, except prisoners. I'm not sure if you know this, but I'm waiting to see the jaw drop. Did you know that penal labor in the United States is explicitly allowed by the 13th Amendment, meaning prison labor of the United in the United States Constitution? Quote: Neither this is the 13th Amendment. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Ladies and gentlemen, we have prison labor in America. An article from The Atlantic, quote, Crops stretch to the horizon. Black bodies pepper the landscape, hunched over as they work the fields. Officers on horseback, armed, oversee the workers. I'm going to say it once again. We have 250 years of slavery, indentured servitude, right? You're a slave. Then 100 years. You think you're free after the Civil War? Wrong. 100 years of Jim Crow. You want your rights? Wrong. We give you the Civil Rights Act? Wrong. We're going to start the Southern Strategy. So we make sure your people never get in power and you never get the justice that you deserve. You never get your reparations, right? Then we come to today, but the war on drugs that was started by Nixon and is still propagated, right? You have a couple ounces of marijuana on you. That's it. Three strikes, you're out. We're sending you to prison, and we're going to have forced labor. Did you hear that title article I just said? Crop stretch the horizon, black bodies pepper the landscape, while officers on horseback, armed, oversee the workers. I saw the photo, so we got white officers, it doesn't matter what color the officer is, but it's just the image of we have a white officer on horseback with a gun watching over African-American prisoners farming and picking crops. This is America. How insane is this? Hundreds, centuries of oppression. Then we finally give you some rights. You get your first African-American American president. You think you're going to finally get some progress? Wrong. You have some marijuana on you. You go to jail and you're going to work on a field. Prison labor in America. It's not, quote, slavery because you had to have, in, in essence, have done something wrong, right? And you had a little bit of marijuana on you. But now you're working basically as a slave in prison.
1: I mean, I learned about this a little bit in my ethics class. Shout out to that professor. She's great. Um, but yeah, essentially, um, these laws were put into place, to explain it a little better, um, as a blatant way to get minorities in prison. So they would give higher sentences most of the time to people caught people of color who were caught um, with these drugs than white people. So essentially it's just a way to keep them in prison. And it's a form of racism to have these laws in place, knowing that they mostly affect people of color, especially
0: it's a form of institutionalized racism. Yes. Mm -hmm.
1: Especially since most um, of the privileged um, white people would be, you know, they would be able to do these drugs um, in the privacy of their home where a lot of, Um, People who are poor and, you know, forced into, you know, that kind of lifestyle are doing the drugs more on the streets as well. But, you know... It's a way that's part of it, because, you know, these people creating these laws know that. So they're like, this is a way that we can get people of color because they're going to be doing most of these drugs on the streets because they're forced into that lifestyle. And most of the white people or the privileged people are going to be doing it in the privacy of their home. So in that sense, we're going to be able to get more people of color in prison.
0: To further develop your point of the systemic racism, how it's really created by the system. It gets even better, Alyssa. It gets worse, but get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. We have private prisons in America. These are privatized prisons for profit, right? States have contracts with prisons to keep prisons full. Did you know that?
1: I didn't know that. So it goes in this whole idea of cops now have quotas. I heard about that with uh, tickets, but but it goes
0: beyond tickets to arrest, falsely arrest, as we now see with a lot of cop camps where they plant drugs, falsely arrest and imprison individuals who may have not done anything wrong or had an infraction that is clearly not or had um, had a um, justice carried out or, or that when it did not. the cr- What is it? The punishment did not fit the crime. Yeah, You go to prison for a long period of time for having done something not that bad, for having only a couple ounces of a certain drug on you, right? Mm -hmm. And now you're stuck in the cycle where we want to keep you in prison for as long as we can. Because the states have contracts with these private prisons to keep them full and make money. So this whole, the whole system is broken.
1: It is, Prison
0: should be say we don't even want to go the rehabilitative route and we just want it to be punitive.
1: We just need a reform. There's got to be a reform. You
0: can't have private prisons. You can't have people in jail and have people making profit off of people in jail. When did when did this country go from having having, you know, just public prisons as they should be to privatized prisons for no just to make money? They give these workers, because it's slave labor, right, basically in the prisons, starvation wages, because in prisons, a lot of prisons, it's not free food. You got to pay for the food with the money they gave you for the work, but it's never enough. So the way they make money is you now have to call your family from the prison phone to send you money to your account to spend in the jail. So the jail, the privatized jail makes the money.
1: Messed up. This is insane.
0: Absolutely insane, and so it goes to as we as I brought up the systemic racism. And so, what is that exactly? It's a form of racism expressed in the practice of social and political institutions. It can lead to such issues as you guessed it, discrimination in criminal justice, employment, housing, healthcare, political power, education. You get the idea. We talked about all these: the criminal justice, the private prisons. Employment, they're not viewed as equal, right? Housing, we're going to kick 5 million people out. We're going to give you no help. Healthcare, we don't care about giving people healthcare, right? We'd rather have just people die if you can't afford a procedure, right? My father just had a heart attack, as we mentioned on a, a previous podcast, right? I don't know what the bill is. It's probably going to be thirty dollars to $50,000, but he has insurance. How, if you don't have insurance, how are you supposed to afford that bill? Because there's a rule. I'm not sure. It might be in the law. I'm not sure. That no hospital can turn you away. And in principle, it makes perfect sense. If someone's dying, right? We should want it as a society. We should, we agree that we don't want that person to die. We want to save them. But we agree that we want to give you a life of poverty. So all this oppression, you can't get a good job. You don't have a good education. You have a heart attack and you're an African-American or a minority, right? You go to the hospital, you have the procedure done. You saved your life is saved. You get hit with this bill for thirty to fifty, sometimes a hundred thousand dollars, and now you're broke. You can't afford it. You got to leave the house. You got nothing.
1: I also, in the same ethics class, uh, learned about racism in hospitals. Uh, if you notice the rates of death in childbirth and in lots of procedures is a lot higher for black people, people of color. Um, And part of it to blame, we can look at the fact that in poor communities that they're kind of forced into, the hospitals might not be as good of quality. And also a lot of doctors, um, they might look at people with lesser incomes as um, people who might not be able to provide a proper way of payment, so they naturally don't give them better health care.
0: How is it that in the United States, African-American women die at higher rates in childbirth than white women?
1: It's scary to think about. There's no reason why,
0: other than the doctor, and I've read horror stories, that they they don't give them whatever it's called, the epidural, because they think they could take it. Or
1: they don't... Um,
0: they don't offer them treatment because they don't think they can afford it later don't, on. They don't
1: believe that they're really in pain, like, when they're um, saying that they're in pain. This is institutionalized systemic racism in healthcare. It, it's it's in all fields. It's scary. It's extremely scary to think about.
0: So, no re I mean, so, like, it's it's no wonder why African Americans are upset.
1: Yeah, I would be upset too.
0: It makes total sense. It's insane. And that's finally, when we've discussed all of these institutions of racism, we lead, it leads us to today. We're finally rounding off the circle. We're rounding off the edges. Police brutality and criminal justice, right? Alyssa, we live in an American society where black families have talks with their kids at a young age to avoid cops. Why do you think they feel the need to do that?
1: Because um, for some reason, a lot of cops seem to be more afraid. Let's let's go
0: beyond the cops though for a second. It's really just the system itself. Because before you, forget that I even mentioned the police, why avoid the cops? If the cops don't kill you, you're going to be in a system where you're in prison. As we mentioned before, you're stuck with prison labor. It's just the whole concept, the idea of you don't want to have anything to do with the law or an institution in any way because there's systemic racism in all of them. You're not you're not viewed as equal in any of them. You could be an African-American woman giving birth to a child. How innocent is a child? Why does that child's mother get treated differently than somebody else?
1: Yeah, and a lot of cops, well, a lot of people in general have... Um There's a form of racism, I forget the term exactly, it exists, I learned about this as well, where um, you're racist unintentionally. Like, it's just... Well, it's subconscious. Yes. And I think there should be more psych evaluations with police officers, because let's say a police officer might not necessarily believe that he is racist. However, if he pulls over or arrests a black man, he may become a little more afraid than he would with a white man and end up using excessive force out of fear. And it's wrong. And I feel like there needs to be more evaluations because if somebody has, even without realizing it, if they're more racist, it causes too much brutality.
0: So we have a long list of African-Americans that have been killed by the police. Now that's not to say that white people aren't killed by the police. I don't know what the numbers are. I should have looked it up beforehand. I'm sure it's just as equal. It could be more, but honestly, any person killed by the police is an injustice unless you were actively shooting at the police or doing something seriously wrong. Yes. If you were running away, I don't remember the names I should have. I used to have all the names written down somewhere. There was an African-American. We can go through so many stories, a guy running away. They shoot him in the back. What happened to freeze? Stop. You know, the cop shows get it wrong. I don't know why they don't. There's not more gun action on the cop shows. Why doesn't law and order shoot everybody dead? It's supposed to be realistic, right? So we got people like George Floyd. A false $20 bill.
1: Which I think I heard somewhere that like it actually was a real $20 bill.
0: How tragic. He might have had a real $20 bill i do you one better. I don't know what the deal is with the clerk or the store owner or whatever. Why not just work it out with the guy? Why call the police? It was $20. I want, I don't know who, who this person is, what they look like, what their skin color is, but they must feel bad, man, that because they made that phone call, a man died and they started all this, all this protests and these riots. It's just about taking a second to realize who you are. And your privilege. I don't know. Once again, I don't know if he's white or black. If you're an African-American, I would most definitely think that you wouldn't call the cops, right? Because you're like, I can't have my friend be killed, right? Because you know what's going to happen. And if you're white, just take a second and be like, is calling the cops the best situation? He might've given me a false $20 bill, but he lives in the neighborhood. It's not like he's skipping town.
1: It's 20 Mm -hmm. bucks. It was also proven quite recently that uh, George Floyd had previously worked with the cop at the same club.
0: No, yeah, I don't want to get into that because it's a conflict of interest. It's like they yeah. knew each other. Did they not like both each-
1: security guards. Did they
0: not yeah. like each other beforehand? Now, just because they work together doesn't mean that the guy who took his life can't be a cop, right? Before they met, he didn't kill anybody, right?
1: But he had a history of using a lot of force on people. I know. It's quite which tragic. it should be one strike you're out. I mean, I don't understand. I saw a report once where somebody's like, someone was like tampering with the ice cream machine or something. Imagine, you know... 57 times them still having their job think about it in terms of the amount of police officers who have been using too much force 57 times and still have their job like why should it be any different with like a food off a food worker versus a police officer if they weren't doing their job right the first time you know if anything especially if it's something that severe you know they shouldn't have their job
0: well, this individual, um, the cop, he had like twelve. I've read anywhere from twelve to nineteen complaints. So obviously, how is he
1: still employed? Or was? How was he? Any other
0: job, you can't even get away with one complaint. No matter, if you're a lawyer, you lose your practice, your license. If you're a doctor, you mess up, that's it. You kill somebody, you lose your license.
1: A doctor performs surgery wrong on purpose 19 times, still has his job. Like, how would that sound okay? Like, how is it okay with a police officer? Yeah, any
0: any reasonable person knows. Um, It's just not right. After one complaint in most industries, it's like, that's it, it's over.
1: Especially if it's something that, you know, had to be done kind of on purpose. Like, it's not like you accidentally killed somebody with your fist.
0: Yeah. There's one other case I want to highlight though, just real quick as an aside, George Floyd's the big one though, cause it's happening right now. Um, Even though there's so many names, Uh Philando Castile, you probably don't know this one, um, but I do because, you know, know a lot about what's going on with politics. So this one happened a couple of years ago. Philando Castile was an African-American man who was pulled over. I don't remember why they probably said like something like he had a, he had a warrant out for him or something with the license wasn't registered or something like that, right? Um, I don't remember exactly the reason why he was pulled over, but right. So he's in the driver's seat. He has his wife slash girlfriend, whoever, in the passenger. They have the kid in the back seat. Kid's only a couple years old, right? Officer walks up to the window. Everything's cool, right? Nothing, nothing wrong. Um, the officer asks, as they do a lot of the times, so they're like, oh, do you have a weapon in the vehicle? I feel like that's a pretty standard question. They just want to be aware of what's going on, right? Plenica Steele, this was his unfortunate demise. He said, yes. Immediately, the officer, he doesn't grow hostile, but he's like immediately cautionary. And he's, you're he's, he's starting to get uneasy, right? He's like, oh, he's a weapon of the car.
1: Well, he, he's honest about it. He was honest about
0: it. He did nothing wrong. They tell you all the time, these African-American families have conversations with their kids. They say, um you know, obey the police, be overly kind. Yeah. They ask you a question, answer it. And that's what he did. He wasn't hiding a gun. He wasn't hiding a knife. He told him, I have a gun. And the officer asked him, do you have a permit for it, or registration for the gun, right? So it's in the glove box. So Philanica Steele reaches over to the gun block, the, glu- uh, the gun box or the, the glove, glove box. box. I forget what, to either actually get the gun and give it to him or give him the registration. I forget what it is. He goes to reach for it. They shoot him dead in the car. He told them what they were doing. He told them, "I have the gun. I'm going to either give it to you or give you the registration for it." He reached for the glove box, and the cop is like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" And then they just blow him away in the in the driver's seat, and he's still alive. So he's dying next to his wife slash girlfriend, who's freaking out, and the kid is crying like crazy in the back seat. This you've tortured this family forever. Obviously, he did not make it. That's why he's on this list. It's this idea that cops are not. They're not really. A lot of people who join the force are not really fit for the job. And just hear me out on this, right? So I believe that good people become cops. I uh, I believe there are good. There, I'm sure there's just inherently evil people right in the world, right? Mm-hmm. But um, but I feel like they're few and far between. I think a lot of good people do become cops, or it's to some degree with law enforcement. But the machine, the institution itself of police and the way they teach and carry themselves is straight-up evil to minorities. I believe good people can become cops, but to become a cop, you have to shift your mentality and join the club that we're not going to tell on anybody else. If somebody does something wrong, we're not going to call them out because we don't want to risk our own job. We just want to put in our 20 years, retire, get a pension. That's it. So there was this story, as I'm sure you saw, up in Buffalo, just to prove my point, up in Buffalo, did you see those two cops? They pushed that 75-year-old elderly man to the ground. Yeah. He started bleeding from his ear immediately. And they walked right by him. They didn't care. Yeah. It's this machine where they don't care. Everybody, they're just like us versus them. Instead of working as a community, it's the police versus everyone. They pushed him to the ground. Now, context, this guy was, um, they, I believe... I don't know, but the police department most likely knew this man because he lives there and he's a famous, or infamous, I should say, protester. He's been arrested like 300 times. He's an older man. He's an activist. So he's like, I want to be out there with the young generation helping them make the point. I'm an older person. I get it, you know? But they push him to the ground. 75 year old man, boom. Knocks his head, bleeding from the ear. They don't care. They just keep on walking. Somebody else had to scream, yo, we should be getting an EMT or something. And so... These cops were um, subsequently arrested, the two of them, arraigned in court. And what happens after they leave court, after they've been arraigned? uh, No bail. I mean, uh, what what I should say. Not on, I'm trying to think about the phrase. They were arraigned, but um, there was like no, uh, what is it called? Like no bail. Like there was no, they just were out, they were let go for free. They didn't have to pay any money. I believe that was the case, or even if they did, it was such a small amount that they were basically free to go. So they leave. The entire police department is outside the courthouse applauding and cheering them. Now, of course, this is not a gripe against all cops. This is just the institution itself. Once again, I believe there are good people who become cops, but once you become part of the machine, your mentality shifts to this us versus them. And, oh, wow. Even though they pushed a 75-year-old man to the ground, he's in critical condition. He almost was white. He white. Was white. It doesn't even matter. They'll And you don't think there was cameras everywhere filming this, right? Yeah. They don't think that's why they say that you have to be so overtly careful because they will push you to the ground and, and push you to the brink of death and maybe even kill you when we have a camera. George Floyd was for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, getting choked to death by an officer, and there was a girl filming, and the cop did not care. He did not care. He just kept doing it. He did not care. He went into full instinctual, instinctual, I should say, cop mode, and was just like, no, us versus them. I'm keeping my knee on the neck. Nothing's changing. You could film all you want. They don't care. And so with this guy, they're clapping, cheering on their two colleagues who almost killed a 75-year-old man for getting out of court and not being... Um, in prison, no bail. That's it. It's absolutely insane. And so this moves us to one of our final points I want to get to, which is this whole idea that you asked me about the other day in my stance. And I finally have an answer for you about a lot of people are saying defund the police. In Minneapolis, they defunded their police. I don't think this is the right move. I'm going to tell you why. You need law and order. When Trump says law and order, that's a different type of law and order. He means, to some extent, oppression. Law and order, to me, means maintaining the peace. You have to enforce the idea of private property. You can't just steal from people, right? Everybody has to get along together. You can't just kill somebody. So defund the police? No. Demilitarize? Yes. Under President Obama. Once again, I'm going after Obama. Look at me. I'm so measured. I can go against both parties, right? He basically sold military equipment to the police. That's why you see all these police with uh, riot gear, they basically all look like they're in the military, but they're not the National Guard. Why does the police look like the military? Why do they have armored trucks, armored vehicles, heavy assault weapons? They're the police in London, Alyssa. You know, they carry batons, they don't even carry weapons. Yeah, I saw. And don't you hear about all the stabbings that happened there? Wrong. They're a very peaceful country. Yes, of course, there is some terrorism, but that's not, it's, it's, that's from other sources. That's not what I'm talking about, like. American-on-American crime here. And so, can you imagine living in an America where all the cops just carry batons? They didn't have to shoot you dead every time? (laughs) Unfortunately, that's not the world we live in. So defund? No. Demilitarize? Yes. Because these cops shouldn't be decked out to go to war. And it's this whole idea of they're not really trained properly because they overdress for the situation. How many stories have I read about how, you know, they served a warrant at the wrong address. They're shooting up every everybody in the house, flashbanging the kids. The kids are blind now, right into the baby's cradle or whatever. And you're just killing people and they served it at the
1: wrong address. They killed the wrong person. Yeah, and the one th- the one uh, case of, uh, I forget her name, Breonna Taylor, I think, where, um, so- sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong, but they, um, apparently the cops had a silent um, warrant so they could enter the house without, like, like silently, like, without knocking or anything. Um, So they just walked into these people, this um apartment, and Breonna Taylor, she was, like, and I think she was, like, an EMT or something. So, like, she saved people for a living. And obviously, her and her boyfriend thought that they were in his apartment. They thought it was, like, an intruder because, you know, they didn't even knock. It was a no-knock warrant. And um I'm pretty sure he had a gun. I, th- I think he had a license for it. And um, he shot one of the police officers. He didn't know they were police officers because they were dressed not even like police officers. Um, and the police shot back and ended up killing Breonna Taylor in um, the crossfire. And she died. She was she was just sleeping in her bed. That That's what she was doing his night.
0: Republicans agree with the stand your ground law. You know what the standard ground law is? That if somebody breaks into your house, you, you have, have the, the right, right to shoot them. You have the right to kill the other person, and you get away with it scot free. I can imagine that because it was cops involved, Republicans did not agree on the side of Brianna Taylor.
1: Yeah, I don't think they did, and they thought that they had like drugs or something. But like, apparently, they didn't even have drugs. It was oh no, it was Brianna's apartment. I think her boyfriend might have been involved with something, but it wasn't even his apartment. So why were they going to hers?
0: Yeah, that's conflict number one. And conflict number two is, what's with the no-knock warrant?
1: I think, I mean, I heard in one place they started, they banned it because of that or something.
0: How do you start just go, literally, even though it was sanctioned by, you know, a judge for the warrant, uh, literally trespass?
1: They shouldn't have no-knock warrants unless it's like a murderer and they need to go in. You know, it's a mass murderer and they need to arrest him. But if it's not like a violent crime, then there's no reason.
0: So they go, they're just breaking down the door, basically trespassing in this person's house. And then we're not surprised that they thought you know, it was
1: an intruder. It's like the middle of the night.
0: What's wrong? You know, for all these gun owners. Yeah, you're out. You have the right to second amendment rights, have the gun and shoot back, stand in your ground law. But if it's a cop, it's different. The cops are always right. And it shouldn't be like that. And this brings me to the New York City police union leader. There was a gentleman who said, that's not us. In reference to the Minneapolis uh, incident that happened with George Floyd and the killing He said, quote, stop treating us like animals and give us a break. And this is so hilarious because I see the irony here. I'm sure you can as well. The side by side of them pushing the cop up in Buffalo, pushing him to the ground.
1: I mean, I do have to say that the NYPD is probably uh, a bit uh, more. What's the word?
0: Well, I don't know where you're going with this, but they have a really problematic history with stop and frisk. And just straight up going into minority neighborhoods and, roughing quote, roughing them up.
1: They do have a more diverse police force, though, in New York versus, like, Minneapolis. Well, they
0: definitely have to change their approach because Manhattan is the, one of the most diverse cities probably in the world.
1: But they, they still need reform here, just like they do in oh, yeah, nobody, everywhere.
0: Nobody's perfect. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so, but once again, the irony of, I'm not sure if you saw, they have on tape, you know, the cops... While they're driving, like, the protests got really bad about a week ago, I would say, like, last weekend in Manhattan, where they had institute a curfew and whatnot. So this cop is saying, that's not us. Don't treat us like animals. Give us a break. Side that, side by side, um, you can see them literally running over protesters in NYPD vehicles, running over protesters in the street, and then on the police radio saying, run them over. Literally, run them down. It doesn't matter. Side by side that. You know, cut that to— uh, police when the curfew hits and a man is walking home with his bicycle beating him with a baton is this the america we live in yeah it is going to be cops versus everybody else if this is the way you carry yourselves instead of talking with the guy hey you know the curfew's instituted can you go home now he wasn't even on the bike he was walking the bike across the street right they start beating him with the baton they're just they just go just beat up everybody
1: what if what if he was like homeless like where would he go
0: but you know why it's okay Listen. Because no rich white person is walking their bike across the street. They're up in their penthouse on Fifth Avenue. They're abiding by the curfew. If this happened to a wealthy person, you'd think that cop wouldn't be fired right away. But it's just average New Yorkers trying to get home or do their thing. Or protest, which is a right. Your First Amendment right to peacefully assemble.
1: You you could peacefully protest. I feel like some of the rioters and looters might actually be for the other side and they want to give the police officers a reason to stop it. Because if it's just peaceful, then they don't have enough of a reason to shut it down. But if it turns into looting, then they can arrest people and they can, you know, they have a reason.
0: Arresting is different than just beating up everybody you see.
1: So I feel like part of the people looting and stuff might actually be people who don't agree with the movement, who want to shut it down.
0: Yeah, well definitely protesters, a lot majority of them, they condemn the riots. You know, they're not they don't stand for the riots. The rioters are just taking advantage of the situation. But even if they're not and they are still on their side of the protest, I don't agree with the way they're going about it. I don't think it's the right way. But once again, as I said before, violence is the politics of last resort. You only lash out when your back's against the wall. When they keep killing you and there's no reform and your African American president didn't help you and you kick five million of you out, what else are you supposed to do? You have no choice but to riot. There's nothing left. You have nothing left. You have no money, you have no wealth, you have no education. What more do you what more do you want from them? The only thing, the only thing in principle is that they can't take away from you is your life. But guess what? They, they used can. to take away your life. They used to lynch African Americans all the time. They used to kill slaves all the time. It's just absolutely insane. And so what's the solution? We need to fundamentally change the institution of policing. I believe we need to Police pay is infamously very low. I think we should seriously augment, if not double, police pay to make it a high-paying job, right? The real heroes in this country should be paid to some extent. Military should be be being paid more. The cops should be paid more. But we need to have better, more qualitative, and higher training for the cops, Yes, I believe a lot of cops get into the job, as I mentioned before, simply to just do their 20 years, retire, have a pension, move on to another job, right, when they're 40. If you join in when you're 20, you leave when you're 40, right? We need to have people who are skilled in communicating with others and who go through extensive training. Why is it that lawyers need to take up, like, you know, four years undergrad, another three to four years for law school, Right to become a lawyer, to learn the law. But cops go through a short program and they get a gun to enforce the law.
1: Maybe they should have to go through more schooling. No, I'm not saying you have to Maybe they should know the law more.
0: You don't have to go through eight years to become a cop. But maybe let's make the the training longer and fundamentally change the way we teach cops to try to work things out with individuals instead of escalating to- Because here's what's so tragic about George Floyd. They arrested him and then he stuck his- his, uh, knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. George Floyd was not like flailing his arms. He was there abiding by the police. They told him to stop. He's just on the ground crying out to his mom because they're not listening to him. He's like, yo, I can't breathe. Get off me. You arrested me already. What more do you want from me? They took his life. So black people have nothing left. If you're going to take a man's life, that's it. There's nothing more. Well, if we can give up. And so we need to fundamentally change the institution of policing, give them better training uh, more education on how to carry out their job and increase the pay because they should be willing to taste take the risks i understand that being a, jo- a cop is hard I, I don't i don't want to be a cop but i can imagine that it could it's probably very difficult like it is joining the military knowing that you're putting your life on the line every day for the betterment of the community but the problem is they view it as just a job to make money and not as a job as a they, they know that they're a cop, but they just, they just want to, as they say, I just want to make sure I get home at the end of the day. No, no, no. Your job as a cop to make sure the citizen gets home at the end of the day. Yeah. Not that your life gets home at the end of the day, because you took the job of being a cop. Now, I don't want anybody to die. No, but no cop, nor civilian, civilian, nobody should die. But if you're a cop, and especially if we increase your training and we give you higher pay and we hire more quality individuals, that you should be willing to take that risk so that when Philando Castile says- I'm just getting the registration to show you that I have for the weapon, right? That you don't just shoot him dead, that you give him a chance. Cuz we're paying you to take that chance. We're not paying you to go in guns blazing. Yes, we're exactly. We're paying you all this extra money to make sure that you don't take another life, that you take that chance. You know, in war, there's a rule that you cannot be shot and you at least I believe it was at some time that in for the US military, you can't fire unless fired upon. Some, some degree of that rule has been implemented over time, whether it's eroded now, I'm not sure. But that was definitely implement, implemented at some time. Yeah. So why is it that cops shoot first, ask questions later to make sure that they get home instead of making sure that the other individual goes home? Once the cop pulls somebody over, it's that cop's job not to end the person's life and protect their life, but make sure that person, as long as they're not a criminal, gets to go home. You don't just stop a car, pull them over and end their life like so many cops do.
1: Yeah. I think that there should be more psychological examinations to make sure that people aren't, you know, particularly racist in any way, even, you know, unbeknownst to them. And I think that there should also be, like you were saying, like more schooling because cops should be very well-rounded with knowing all their laws. You know, I see so many cases of, you know, people from all upbringings who are, you know, being arrested and, Uh, or being pulled over and the cop doesn't like, I've seen footage where the cop is trying to trick people into thinking that like, it's illegal to record or illegal to do this, illegal to do that. And really the cop is just trying to meet a quota. So I actually encourage people to get dash cams because if you do get pulled over, um, you need that footage to show in court, um, But yeah, I think that cops should, first of all, yeah, the quotas are a little bit much. I don't necessarily think there should be a quota. I think they should um, be trusting enough to know that the cops, you know, arresting, you know, the average amount of people per day, but it shouldn't be like a quota because then cops try to fill the quota by pulling over people who don't necessarily, you are not necessarily doing anything wrong. Um, But yeah, I think the quotas shouldn't really be a thing. And um, I think they should have to go to school more to know their laws back in front. They shouldn't be unsure about anything and they shouldn't be able to be outsmarted by somebody just in their car.
0: This is what the whole thing with being a cop is they learn the law. Like everybody does. And so when you're taking a test, you learn just enough to get by. And then once you get by, that's it, you're done. You don't care Yeah. what happened. We should be retesting cops Yeah. all the time to make sure they're up to date and they have the proper training. They know how not, how to um, get a person, how to um, try to think about what the phrase is.
1: Make sure they don't have anger issues. Make sure they have their right in the head.
0: Yeah, but to, I guess, I don't know what the exact word is, calm a person down or subdue a person without killing them. Yeah. Like be able to take control of the situation without having to press your um, knee on their neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds.
1: Maybe instead they could try to use like a tranquilizer or like, you know, use um their taser instead of their gun if they have to. Well, taser
0: is also considered a deadly weapon. You could kill somebody. Absolutely. Especially if they have heart problems. But I want to go beyond that. And so this whole idea of quotas that you were talking about before. Why? Because they need the money. So, defund the police, no. Demilitarize, yes. But increase funding, perhaps. Make sure that they have the proper amount of money to justify the extra risk they're going to take. If we may, you know, I don't want to get into speculation about what could have happened or what we can do, but I think things can be put into place that force cops to just take an extra 0.1% of a chance instead of just. Like, here's another example, and I hate to, because I feel like I'm going on for, for forever, but there was a young kid, I forget his age, I think he was like 12, named Tamir Rice. I forget in what neighborhood, but LeBron talked about this, I think. And he was playing with a toy gun in, the, in a park. Should, should he have been playing with a toy gun? No. I, I I don't think he should have been playing with a black toy gun. It looks like a real gun, right? But I think it was an impoverished neighborhood. What do you want to do? They play with BB guns, right? That's what It is what it is. The cops roll up to him. You can see the video later on. I implore everybody else to look it up. The cops drive onto the sidewalk, literally jump out of the car, shoot him dead in less than two seconds. They didn't even stop to ask. They didn't know he was 12 years old that had a BB gun. If they got out of the car to ask, listen, I get it. You think this guy is a gun? Get out of the whatever side of the car that's not facing him. Take cover behind the car. Tell him to stand down, right?
1: Tell him um, to freeze. Tell him to freeze. Yeah.
0: You know, I think I heard about this. Instead, they just shot him dead. A 12-year-old boy, I believe that was his age. If not 12, he was younger. They just killed him straight up. No justice. Those cops got off easy. Because there's this whole mentality in the police department. It's better to be judged by 12 than carried out by six. And what that means is most every cop knows that the jury of their peers is going to let them off. Because that's just the standard. You don't want to be killed and carried, you know, in a casket by six individuals, you know, because that's the idea that I'd rather be judged by my peers and know I'm going to get off than be dead. Right. But we have to pay them enough, I think, or give them enough incentive and proper training to change and not abide by those phrases and have an open dialogue and allow cops to criticize other cops and be like, listen, listen. You're using excessive force. The biggest tragedy of the George Floyd situation is that there were other cops nearby that watched it happen and did nothing. That was normal to them to just let that man die. That was okay with them because they didn't stop in. They didn't intervene.
1: Well, some of the cops were in training, so maybe they were a little bit nervous to challenge authority. That,
0: oh, are you but, kidding me? That that's more. That's almost more of a reason. You're in training. You'd be like, be like, whoever's the boss there on the scene, whoever's the highest ranking officer. I think it
1: was the guy with the neck. With
0: Absolutely absurd. And if he's the high-ranking officer, look at the example he's showing for the rest of the officers that this is okay. It
1: goes to show you that there needs to be more training so that they know immediately that what he's doing is wrong. They shouldn't have to question it and say, well, he's the superior. He knows what he's doing. They should say, well, we just learned uh, in training that that's wrong. Like, you know, are you sure you're supposed to be doing that?
0: But they're not taught that. They're taught just... Make sure you get home at the end of the day. And that's
1: proof that the, the system isn't working. The fact that they probably were questioning if it was okay, they should, it shouldn't have to be questioned.
0: Training or not. I'm sorry. I don't care if it's controversial. Guilty. Why is it that somebody who didn't even participate in the crime but was just driving the getaway vehicle, you know, also gets a life sentence for killing somebody, you know, even if the other person did it? Like, How many cases are there where listen, maybe there was a robbery, right? And that's a, That's not right. And something went wrong. And the person who was committing the robbery killed somebody. They weren't supposed to. Nobody was supposed to get hurt, right? They were supposed to take the money and leave. How does the person who's driving the getaway car also get charged with murder? Or how many instances are there where people don't even realize that a crime is happening? Say your friend runs up to your car and like, hey, let's get going. You don't even know what happened, but you drive off. And that person is then immediately also held to the same standard because you were Aiding them in the crime, therefore you were also charged with murder, even though you do, you yourself did not kill anybody. So all those cops that let that happen, I don't care if you're questioning it or not. Somebody had to speak up. They chose not to. Guilty. I don't care if it's controversial. Yeah. It just and you know what? The, the city of Minneapolis has deemed it as such because they've chosen to completely defund their police. I'm not sure if it's completely or not, but I believe it is. That they've just chosen we're getting rid of the police. And the problem is because cops have been so bad for so long and we haven't had reform that they had such a radical change. They went from all police to no police. And the reality is somewhere in the middle. That's what you need.
1: Yeah, because, you know, obviously we can't have people just committing crimes left and right. You know, yeah, we, and- we need police officers. But, you know, maybe like you were saying, if, if we give them more pay then and more education, if it, it's harder to become a police officer because you have to go through more schooling then all around, they're going to be more qualified to do their job. You know, they're going to want to, more people are going to want to become a police officer if it's a higher paying a job. Therefore, they'd be willing to go through with more schooling. Therefore, it'd just be a harder job to get in general. And maybe that's how it should be.
0: Mm -hmm. And I've seen, you know, many of the cops, they agree that was wrong. And that leads me to the final point, um, which I'm not going to sit, uh, sit on for too long, but that there's a message of hope that things are changing. A lot of cops around the country have made their own videos, they've resigned, they acknowledge it's wrong, um, and they know it's not right, and they're committing to a change. Now, is that change going to play out? We'll have to wait until the next African American is killed by a cop. Hopefully that doesn't ever happen, but to see whether or not change really takes place, we'll have to wait and see.
1: It'll probably happen.
0: Which is sad, but I know a lot of cops are acknowledging that they need to change. I have a quote from an article here. We quote, we recognize that there is a need to change. And this is really what the police think about the civil unrest. They're like, listen, we're not happy that people are protesting and rioting. We understand we're wrong. We're going to make a change. We're going to make sure that those cops that are standing by interfere and step up. How many times in Law and Order that we watch together, we see like one cop like, yo... You shouldn't be doing that. Like, I feel like they stop each other all the time. Like, well, there needs to be
1: a change. There needs to be more education, reform, evaluations. Like it it can't, it can't keep going like this. You can't be
0: ostracized in the police department. If you call out another officer for using excessive force, that should be championed, not looked down upon.
1: Yeah. It should be like becoming a police officer is such an exclusive, hard to get job that, you know, you're trying your best not to mess up because then the next guy is going to replace you.
0: Yeah. And so as we're coming to our final hallmarks here, what I've been trying to do with this whole extended podcast of Race in America is really just educate people to the best of my knowledge. As I mentioned before, at the beginning of the first part was how what, what we spoken about today can, of course, not do justice to what they've gone through. It's hard to um, really understand what African-Americans have gone through over the course of American history, because I'm not African-American. I can't speak to all the daily um, struggles that they go to. I can only speak to the big things that I know about. And I'm sure there's a million cases and there's thousands of African-Americans that I've missed to mention. But I, what I really want to do with this Race in America episode was really just highlight how they've had it so rough for so long that it boggles my mind that people question why they're upset.
1: Yeah, like you'd be upset too if that was your America, if that was your reality. If
0: your family started or if your first ancestor started as a slave brought over by boat to America, I think you'd be pretty upset too. And so, yeah, they just had it bad for so long that we're finally seeing it slowly come to fruition. All that's boiled up, it's slowly boiling over. And so things need to change. I think we're going to start seeing a change And I hope that one comes. So I hope that I've educated all of you um, to the best of my ability so you can just empathize to some extent.
1: Yeah, and I also believe that people should be looking at change.org because there are multiple petitions that they can sign. I've signed a few um, to, you know, benefit uh, the Floyd family and to help to bring change to America. And there are tons of uh, petitions. You should definitely check that out.
0: And just one final point I want to add because someone out there. Not that I really care about the critics. will say that we didn't tackle all the points and this is one I feel like I might have missed just when you mentioned George Floyd's name again. Some things have come up about him about his troubled past and things he's done. Um but ad hominem meaning character
1: attacks. I was saying does that not before justify it's to my dad death. actually and he was agreeing. Um that just because somebody committed crimes it doesn't in all honesty, I know the crimes that he committed were kind of not great. But ultimately, we are supposed to leave um, everything up to the justice system. You're supposed to go to court. You're supposed to let um, the court decide, you know, your fate based on the crimes you committed. Punishment should never be in the hands of a police officer on the street. It's not just because he, you know, he had a troubled past doesn't mean that that police officer that day had the right to take his life.
0: Absolutely. And we, and in, in America really truly manufactured why he did what he did. Cause when you put a man in the situation where he needs to do certain things to get by, to get money, whatever it is, um, there's no it's no wonder that he's going to have a troubled past, but just because you had a troubled past, does that mean, how many times did they kill somebody and they bring up, oh, you know, he used to sell drugs in high school or he did something that was like not good in the eyes of, I guess. I
1: mean, that's not the point. The point is that you didn't even let the justice system take its course because uh, the police officer took justice into his own hands and that was wrong.
0: Absolutely. So just because you did something in the past does not give you the right to die. Exactly. And so having touched on all points, I think that I wanted to touch on, uh, I want to thank you all for joining us on this special episode of BFVGF. I hope I've given you all just a taste of what African-Americans go through, um, whether it's their history, their mm-hmm. lineage, their ancestry, centuries of tension, and what they're now going through today. So I hope things get better. I think they will. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll catch you all in the next one.
1: Thank you, everybody.